Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to, new, to the New Books Network. I'm Boris Karpa, and this is New Books in History. And to get, today we have with us uh, Professor David Baker, who is a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama. And the book that we're going to discuss here is The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, the untold story of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's concentration camps, censorship, and mass surveillance. I'm pleased to have you with us today, David. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm going to, the first question is quite straightforward. Uh, Now, people who are uh, seeing us, uh, of course, through the website will see a summary of the book. But for people who are listening to us through through their phone or through whatever device, maybe you could explain a bit what your book is about. What does it bring to the table in terms of FDR history? Well, as far as I know, it's the first book uh, of its kind that has looked at FDR and the Bill of Rights in this kind of comprehensive way. Um, I intentionally limited the topic to that subject. And over time, I found out that there was a lot there. Um, So uh, it has a lot of primary documents research. This is not a, it is a synthetic work in the sense that I look at what other scholars have said and I evaluate it. But really, the bulk of it is original primary research. That's why it took so long. So I've been looking at the documents of the Federal Radio Commission, of uh, you know uh, uh, manuscript collections of the key players, um, um, newspapers, a lot of newspapers from the period. Just like the tiny, uh, tiny poor town of Anatevka, we do depend on tradition a lot. At the show, and so I have a traditional question for at least for us. It's a traditional question. Can you tell us what has brought you to choose this topic for your book? Well, I, you know, I've done a lot of work on this period, on the Great Depression period. I've always been interested in the history of the presidency. In fact, one of my hobbies on the side for the last five years has been to read presidential and vice presidential autobiographies. That's a topic that that fascinates me. I'm kind of into the great man or great woman theory of history in that sense. Um, And Roosevelt has always fascinated me. Um, And I've this aspect of him, uh, his attitude towards civil liberties. I mean, this is the man that interned Japanese Americans. And I came across other cases that that indicated that he was not that interested in maintaining civil liberties. But yet he's one of the highest ranked presidents in American history. So I wanted to delve deeper into that particular uh, topic. And it was daunting um, at uh, several points in the process. I wanted to give up the project because I'm covering, you know, the entire Roosevelt administration. Uh, My wife encouraged me to keep on. At one point, I was looking around for a co-author because it was so overwhelming Um, but I stuck to it. And I guess if anyone 
wondering what advice I'd give if they want to look at a big topic like that is you try to take it apart piece by piece. So the chapters, for the most part, can stand alone. There's a chapter on Japanese internment. There's a chapter on radio. There's a chapter on um, um, mass surveillance on, uh, and so forth. And so I took it apart bit by bit. And then it was like a puzzle, you know, constructing a puzzle from, I don't know, piece by piece. And I could start to see how it all fit together over time. You've mentioned mass, uh, mass surveillance, and I'd, I'd like to start with this because I'm struck by these words which you used, with this term, mass surveillance, because, you know, while the, 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 the mass surveillance which you talk about, the surveillance project of the Black, of the, of the black Inquiry Committee, it, these were, in, in, in a way, they were in a form of innovation, but, you know, in, 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 a, in a bad kind of innovation. And can you maybe tell the audience a bit about how the Black Committee pioneered mass surveillance, mass collection of citizens' information? I'd never heard of the Black Committee when I started this process. But I was looking at sort of uh, congressional committees in the 1950s, precursors to, I guess you'd call the McCarthy Committee. And people would often complain um, about, oh, this is, uh, this is like the Black Committee. This is like that Black Committee. And I thought, well, what is that? And I looked back in the 1930s, and I came across this congressional committee led by Hugo Black, who was a senator from the state I currently reside, Alabama. He was later a Supreme Court justice. And this committee was headline news in Washington Post, uh, New York Times, you name it. It was front page news for its investigations of anti-New Deal figures. Basically, Black was a very loyal ally of Roosevelt. And he wanted to invent, they wanted to investigate critics of the administration. And that's what they were doing. They were bringing them in. And the argument they made was, well, we're looking at lobbying. And, you know, what we're doing now would be lobbying. It would be, you know, discussing the role of ideas, right? Anything like that could be considered lobbying, according to the Black Committee. So they get very broad and how does the mass surveillance come in? And I'm very comfortable with that term, by the way. That is not hyperbole, in my view. Um, I was just struck by this. Black wanted to go on offense when he questioned witnesses. And he came to the conclusion that the best way to throw them off balance was to find things to surprise them. And he wanted to get access to their private telegrams. And I guess he found out Somebody helped him. He worked with the Federal Communications Commission. He worked with the Roosevelt administration. And they had a rule at the time that the private telegraph companies, the main one was Western Union, that was over 50% of long-distance communication. So it was the email of its time. Really, very close parallels. Had to save, was required to save all copies of all messages. So a black thought, well, if only I get access to this stuff. So he went to the telegraph companies and he said, I want uh, copies of all the telegraph messages sent by, for example, this one thing he asked for, all members of Congress over a nine-month period. I want, you know, these people and these people, I want their messages, their incoming and outgoing messages. And Western Union, um, much like 
one would hope, I would say, a uh, communications company today would act, you know, uh, Microsoft or whoever, uh, would say, you know, no, we're not going to provide you this information unless you have some sort of subpoena, unless it's targeted. Well, these were not targeted. These were sweeping. These were like a, they call dragnet subpoena. This is looking at everything. So he went to the Roosevelt administration and the FCC and went in and made copies, went through three more than three million private telegrams. Now that's mass surveillance. And he copied several thousand, took notes, and he told his staffers, and he did it like, you know, he was able to do it, like 10,000 a day. Um, you know, they, they were very fast. And he said, well, if you see private information, look past that. <laughs> if you any, see anything related to lobbying, which as I said, it could include just about anything, take note of that, copy it. Um, and then he'd call these witnesses in. They had no idea he'd done this. They weren't informed. He said, well, on June 8th, you sent a telegram that said this and this, right? And he'd throw them off balance. Now, again, telegrams are like emails. People would say things in them. They wouldn't say in um, regular messages. They were they were instantaneous. A lot of these companies had their own telegraph operators. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't save them. So they let their hair down. So it was a really great way from his standpoint to go on offense against these witnesses. And I think mass surveillance applies. Three million private telegrams this committee went through. Right. This is definitely a completely different scale of uh, surveillance than I think. I don't think that there has been a similar program before this. Nothing like this. Um, you know, they had gone to the tele- government had gone to the telegraph companies before and it often been big, big battles. And they were able to get messages, but it was usually very targeted, like one individual, you know, and there would be, you know, evidence of a crime or, you know, it wasn't this kind of thing. And then later you had the FBI tapping phones, but you'd have several hundred being tapped in a single day. I've, I've seen the estimate. It was small compared to this. So it was truly a bigger deal in that sense than anything before uh, or anything since up until, you know, the Internet age, basically, I would say. So it was a big deal in terms of scale. Just to move on from this a little bit, you've already talked a bit about the role which the FCC played. And one thing which strikes me, and it's a trend throughout your book, but particularly with the FCC, but you've got these agencies which are supposed to be these non-political bodies, these expert bodies, and allegedly they are there to do these, uh, to you know, create a framework in which people do their business to regulate uh, a given uh, a given economic activity. But they're clearly clearly they're being weaponized. They're being weaponized politically. Whether you talk about the IRS being used to target uh, critics of the New Deal, you talk about the FCC, which transformed basically into a surveillance organization. Uh, later, it transformed also into a censor. And, uh, can you tell us about this process of where these agencies? You know, which we, we stopped just being regulatory, and they became a partisan. They became, you know, a, a tool for political. Uh, I don't want to say political suppression, but clearly they're politicized in a very crude way. How does this happen? It's a revolving door, and I guess uh, in a lot of ways, right? People are in and out of government. Um, 
they they know each other. Let me give you a very good example. You mentioned the FCC, and I think that that's a that's a that's a good example. The man who hired uh, to FDR, you uh, that handled radio for FDR again was a no one knew radio better than FDR how to use it. When he ran in 1932, his guy named Herbert Petty. Petty. When Roosevelt becomes president, he appoints Petty head of the FCC. So there you've got already some degree of politicization. Charles Bellows was president of CBS. He was uh, had been an F, F uh, federal uh, uh, community uh, was called the Federal Radio Commission at that time. He'd been a he'd been one of the members of that, and uh, he was president of CBS. Right. So when Roosevelt comes in, oh, another thing about Bellows is Roosevelt had gone to school with him. Right. So a lot of them are going to the same prep schools. Right. FDR was Harvard man. Um, uh, you know, I could just go example after example. I forgot what the name of the prep school was called, but he they were classmates. He knew he knew these people that were well pl- placed in business and government. So there was a friendship level. Now, what also happens with the Federal Radio Commission, of course, is you got a national crisis in 1933. The economy is in very bad shape. Roosevelt comes in. Everybody said he's the president and they're inclined to not ask any questions. So basically the networks just say, Mr. President, you have the use of the airwaves at any time, right? Um, If you have critics, uh, we will take them off the air. So in that emergency period, although things do lighten up a little later, he has broad powers, but a lot of it is he knows these people. He knows them on a first name basis. He can he can uh, contact Bellows and you know call him Chuck or Charles or whatever he calls him, and uh, he's a charmer and he can get get what he needs. But he usually doesn't even have to contact them in that way. They know what to do. So the FCC is a good example of that. But there are others of people moving in and out of government, people going to the same schools, uh, people knowing each other on a personal basis, and they don't really see that they're doing this for political reasons in a lot of cases. Um, they, they have a, a similar agenda, but sometimes they do. And there are officials that say that are uncomfortable with it and push back. So to some extent, it's, uh, to some extent, it is just that they share the same beliefs as, as, uh, as Roosevelt does. And to some extent, it's actually a personal connection which they have or a party connection. So and from this, I'd like to go back a bit, at least at least in terms of in terms of going back in time because we talk about something which is really fascinating to me as a discussion of political tactics when you talk about Hoover expanding the powers of the federal radio regulators you know transforming the replacing the federal radio commission with what we know as FCC and you talk about something which you you call the strategy of manufactured chaos as is a term you use in your book and may I, 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 it was such a such a fascinating example of the strategy, which so I, I really would like you to talk about this on this show because it's a strategy yeah, which is I'm still used sure. today. Oh, go ahead. It's a, it's a strategy which is still used today. We can still still see agencies do this, and so maybe you should explain this. 
I think it is going on today. It's not a term I originated. I think it was Thomas Hazlett or Charlotte Twight that came up with it, um, uh, who did very good work about the 1920s. And that's a chapter where I cheat because the focus is on FDR for the whole book, with the exception of one chapter. And that chapter looks at radio before FDR came on board. And it looks at the regulation that came in that he expanded and used quite effectively. But I said, look, we have to, for me at least, let's look back. What was radio like? Because radio was a very young medium. The first radio station, commercial station, came on the air in 1920. Roosevelt took office in 1933. So what happened in that previous decade? It turns out it was very fascinating because initially the federal government's regulatory power of radio was very limited. The only thing the federal government pretty much could do was if you were already you know, uh, broadcasting, you'd go, very often you were doing it already, you'd go to the federal government and you'd get a license. And then they would say, okay, here's your wave- wavelength. And if anybody interferes with your wavelength, you know, we'll stop them, right? So it was a property rights regime, basically, right? You'd own the wavelengths pretty much as private property. You could buy or sell stations. There was no license renewal. There was no requirements beyond that. And so I think in the early 1920s, it's very fair to say that radio was freer than the print, pre- print press in a lot of ways. There were, no, there were still prior restraint laws. For the print press, not for radio. So you can go on there and you had socialist stations, you had labor union stations, you had uh, evangelists, you had an incredibly wide range of different radio operators. Now, the head of the uh, Department of Commerce, which regulated radio such as it was, was Herbert Hoover, future president. Hoover was a progressive He's often seen as a kind of free market, do-nothing guy. No, he was he was in that tradition of the progressive Republicans. He wanted government to do more. And his view of radio was the following. He said, look, I don't like all this commercialism. I don't like people, all these commercials all the time. And all these stations, they're not concerned about the public good, and they're treating radio like, um, you know, private property. They're selling and buying it. They're they're looking at it this way. He didn't like this. And they've got narrow specialized interests. He didn't like that. So if you had a station that was for a labor union, he didn't like that because he wanted them to be more generic, to appeal to the whole public, right? That's what his ideal was. So uh, he was trying to get more regulation, more censorship, more control, and more ability to shape what radio looked like, and he was frustrated at every turn. He lost some court decisions. And so he worked with this guy who was a a man named Zenith, who ran his own radio station, uh, who was uh, the Zenith, uh, you know, the very famous Zenith uh, company. And he had gone to the North Pole, or was it the South Pole? I forget. But he was a well-known figure. And Zenith, Working with Hoover, and I, and I, I, you know, I don't know if they worked, you know, 100% with each other, but they were working for the same goal. And I think they, they ultimately did work together. Zenith uh, had a radio station and he intentionally jumped his frequency. He moved it to an unauthorized frequency. And the government tried to stop him. It had to, it was supposed to. 
but uh, Zenith uh, uh, basically sued and he won the suit. And the suit basically said, yeah, you can do that. And it basically said that the federal government really doesn't have this power to enforce uh, frequencies or anything like that. It, it just can register, but it can't really do much. Who had a choice? He could have uh, appealed to other court rulings with contradicted this and gone to the higher courts. Um, um, and or he could have said, look, I'm going to keep enforcing the old law because of these previous rulings. Let let the courts decide. But instead, what he decided in a very calculated way was I'm going to stop uh, enforcing wavelengths. And in other words, he created chaos. What I mean by that, I mean, any station and there were hundreds of them could move their frequencies wherever they wanted. If a new person wanted to start a station and interfere with the frequency of an old one, they could do it. And it was total chaos. So people would turn on their radios and what would they hear? They'd hear all this interference. So it created a groundswell for support for more regulation. And Zenith, for example, was a supporter of this. And out of this, we get the creation of the Federal Radio Commission, which became the FCC. And what they did is they reduced the number of stations. They made, they in effect nationalized the airwaves where they said, this is a government wavelength and we'll let you use it, right? We'll let commercial stations be there, but they, uh, they've got to go by these regulations. And if you violate them, then we can force you from the air. Now, the part of the story that is, is, is goes on and on is I talk about how stations actually tried to use the courts to create property rights in the wavelengths. And they were actually having some success with that, but it was too late. Such momentum had been created and Hoover had his opportunity that we get the creation of the Federal Radio Commission, which essentially is the Federal Communications Commission. It changes its name later that regulates the airwaves and um, um, ended this system, this free-for-all, uh, highly uncensored system. But it was done first by the government, in effect, saying, we're not going to do anything, and we're not going to protect your property rights, and you had chaos developed. And you created a market demand, at least to some extent, for more regulation. But they had to move fast because uh, private stations were actually stepping in and, and coming up with ways to create stability out of the chaos, but they didn't have enough time. And so we are, we are, we are, we are moving on to something you know, directly from this uh, actual censorship as we broadly understand it, which is, you know, the, the FCC coming in and, and punishing a station for the content which they had. It happened in 1930, and, and, it, and, and FDR is not president yet, but it happens due to, according to your book, to, due to a broadcast about sexual health. It, it often starts, these things often start with sexual censorship, but... Under Roosevelt, the regulators became far more political in their in, in what they censored and in, in, in what they did. Can, can you maybe explain 
how this happened. Well, you you mentioned that the censorship came in. Uh, the one of the people that was a key guy was a name Bob Schuler, who was an evangelist. He was actually probably a pretty conservative Christian, right? Traditional Christian, but he had his own station that reached many states. It was a, I guess, a kind of a, a, I don't know, it just had a very powerful frequency. So you could hear it in Mexico, you could hear it in Canada, and he had entertainers, he had his evangelists. But then his belief about sex was that you should be fairly frank about it. You you should, you know, um, you know, and I, I don't think it would be anything that would <laughs> be bad now, right? But you should be pretty candid. But he was also, uh, Schuler was also attacking a lot of political leaders. He was very acerbic, um, um, you know, and that kind of thing. Very blunt, uh, very popular. Um, and the Federal Radio Commission basically came in and said, we don't like your content. Um, and, you, you know, we don't care about your little philosophy. You know, uh, this isn't the public interest. And they, they basically, they, they shut his station down. Um, and, um, um, and, and then they did some others, but then after that, what happens is the message is communicated and these local stations know that there are certain things, whether it's sexual or political, right? Seen as, uh, uh, too critical of the administration. Um, they'll be required to provide, uh, equal time, or they'll be told that this is just not responsible. Uh, it was impossible to for a political figure to buy time in a lot of cases. That's how severe the restrictions became. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to run, you know, had a political philosophy, you wanted to buy a station to express that political philosophy, you couldn't do that at a certain point because they would say, look, uh, you can't, you know, you can't, you know, this is commercialization. And if somehow you were able to do something like that, they would require equal time, which would make it impossible for you to continue because it would be too expensive. So over time, we get more and more regulation. And then the networks are so confused on what to do that they set up their own broadcasting code. But essentially, the federal government, the FCC, gives its approval to that code. So you actually set up private censorship that codifies a lot of this and even makes it more restrictive. But this is done with the approval of the Federal Radio Commission, where they're just basically trying to please them, right? So people, and they had to renew a license, I think, every 18 months. So you were constantly worried about license renewal. Let's say you were turned down, you were a small station in Nebraska. It's very expensive to send people to Washington, to hire lawyers, to challenge the government's decision. So they just don't want any trouble. So you start to get very generic radio, right? Very innocuous, very careful, and very much emphasizing a generic, like I said, oh, you have some entertainment, you have some drama, you have this, you have this. You don't have the kind of market segmentation you had had earlier, where you have now too is market segmentation. You don't have a kind of specialization. You have an attempt to sort of have a little bit of everything, but to be very careful in how you frame it. Uh, 
And just to drill down a little bit more on the subject, which we have already talked about a bit, is the cooperation, you know, it's almost, you could say, the collusion between the biggest radio networks and the White House. And you mentioned that the, the, the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, they've placed their networks directly at the administration service. They've notified the president, if, if you want us to stop our broadcast so you could speak to the nation, you could do this. You talk about the coordination between the White House and the media, the coordination between some of the radio outlets and the FBI. And to what extent is this based on the genuine, uh, you know, on, on one hand, you mentioned, of course, that many of these people did feel a genuine affinity to these New Deal ideas. And on the other hand, I, I don't doubt that there was a degree of, you know, I don't want to say corruption, but you know, a knowledge on which side your bread is already buttered. And uh, so, to, to what to what extent was the self interest? You know, it's just awfully hard to disentangle that. I mean, we look at Roosevelt. Yes, Roosevelt is a political animal. Yes, ultimately, I think self interest is key with Roosevelt. I do think that. And you see his very his flexibility. He'll back off if he has to. But I also think Roosevelt is a very ideological person. I listened to all of his broadcast speeches <laughs> um, over his entire administration. And he he's he's very much a critic of markets, of of laissez-faire, uh, very much a believer in the idea that uh, government is the people's friends and he is a champion of the people against the special interests and uh, that he saved capitalism, right? Um, and I don't believe that, by the way, but, but that's his view. I think that's debatable, that he preserved the system from chaos, that, uh, um, that he's looking out for people. So he believes these things, I think, quite generally. He will push for them as hard as he can. Having said that, if, you know, um, if he needs to for an election, for example, 1944, he forces out his vice president, who I think he frankly preferred ideologically, Henry Wallace, to get Harry Truman. But he also is told by the big bosses we're more conservative than he is, that he needs to get rid of Wallace because Wallace is regarded as too controversial. Um, and so he puts Truman in. So there you see the pragmatism. I, I don't think he wanted Truman. I think he wanted to continue with Wallace, but he'll back off if he has to. Um, so I think you see that a lot. And you see a kind of compartmentalization. Very good example of this is the attorney general. Uh, uh, Francis Biddle, who's a civil libertarian, I think quite genuine for the most part, and a member of the Civil Liberties Union. But he's the man that ultimately he fight, he's against Japanese internment. A lot of people were. But he ultimately goes along with it. He uh, is Roosevelt is constantly pestering him to investigate people. He doesn't want to do it. He sort of goes along with it. And if you read his biography, his autobiography, it's very, very critical of Roosevelt. He said, this guy really didn't value the Bill of Rights very much. He didn't care that much about it. He didn't care about constitutional protections. It's brutal, really. Um, but 
Biddle ends up had dedicated, guess who he dedicated the autobiography to? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So he might like other things about Roosevelt, the welfare state. Um, Roosevelt's a very charming man as well. He's the kind of guy that that is just uh, uh, can, you know, he's got that Reagan. Uh, there's more of a cynical edge to it, but he's got that ability like Reagan did to just make everybody feel very good. His speeches are just beautifully con- put together. They're upbeat. He's very upbeat. He loses humor quite effectively. Um, so he's he's the kind of guy that has charisma, and people are drawn to that. And something which we've talked about, we've talked about this, you have a chapter about Edward Crump, and he's a very stereotypical figure, you might say. I can't, you know, we are on a, we are on a sort of radio show, and so we can't use a photograph, but I want to assure the audience that he actually looks like you would imagine... A racist machine politician to look like from that era. I I cannot prove it, but I ask the audience to either take me on face or look up Edward Edward Hal Crump Jr. and you you will understand what I mean. And he is you know he's significantly racist. He uses every dirty trick which is available to 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 tramp to to trample his opposition to damage racial equality movements to discredit his challengers. And you talk in great detail about some of the dirty tricks which he used, but I, I just like to drill down a bit. The White House was aware of uh, the, the of activities that uh, that he engaged in. He the White House was aware of other people like this, and they worked with them throughout. Yeah, there's a book called Roosevelt and the Big City Mayors that I found quite helpful, and uh, the Crump. In Memphis, you had the mayor of New York. Um, you had Mayor Chicago was named. Um, oh God, I'm trying to remember their names now. But you had the mayor of Jersey City, Haig, who I have a lot in there about as well. But these big mayors were very important at swinging votes, and they were often in in swing states um, where you know uh, where some question is to who win, win the state. They were powers at the Democratic Convention. This is before the time when primaries really are the key way of picking presidents. It was done, and some would argue that's still true, by the way. Maybe uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. would see that as true as well. It's still the big bosses, the big party bosses, and uh, but much more so then, I would say. And Crump is from Memphis. He's... uh, He's been a he's a Roosevelt supporter from 1931 on. I mean, Roosevelt doesn't even run till 1932. But Crump is with that very early group that thinks this is the guy we want to be our candidate. Uh, Very close. And he gets a lot of money from the administration. I mean, from New Deal programs, uh, public works programs, you name it. And he controls that money. He's the gatekeeper. 
So I don't think this occurs in Memphis, but it does occur in another place. And I think it probably occurs in Memphis where people would answer the phones and they would be so confused. It was supposed to be a government agency like the Works Progress Administration, but they'd answer Democratic headquarters, right? Because there was so much intermingled. And people were told, literally told, Mr. Crump says you must vote for this candidate um, if you want to keep this job, basically. So it was that kind of control, very close to the administration. He's a power broker. And Roosevelt is well aware of what he's doing. In fact, uh, there are complaints about what he is doing that actually go up to the Justice Department. There are people that are willing to prosecute him, but uh, that is always vetoed. Um, So they're very close. Now, saying Crump is racist is true, but his racism wasn't his main motivator, initially at least. Initially, he relies on blacks, African-Americans, who could vote in, in, in Memphis. He lets them vote as long as they support him uh, when he needs them. But when the African-Americans there, who are often Republican, go against Trump, then he's brutal in putting them down. And um, he eventually doesn't need them anymore, and he eventually goes you know, against African-Americans in a big way, and you get very open racism. Initially, though, he's inclined to use them his political, you know, allies, very subordinate to him, though. But he turns against them eventually. And he does He does support a range of, well, I don't want to say measures, but he does take up really crude tactics to, you know, to damage to to damage the, 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 their political efforts or what they try to organize with the Republican candidate. Yeah, and and I'd say crude, and I'd say open and blatant. You give you an example. This Republican leader, he's a uh, African American. He's head of the American uh, Baseball League, Negro Baseball League. His name is J. B. Martin. He runs a drugstore, the leading black-owned drugstore, probably in the South. It's a showcase of pride. Um, there are pictures of it in the book, and. Uh, uh, he has a rally right before the 1940 election of over a thousand whites and blacks because Tennessee is a state that, you know, had gone Republican in the past. And it's got this interesting party where you have the African-American Republicans in Memphis. And then in the other parts of the state, the more rural areas, you have a white Republican party that have been, you know, supportive of the Republicans since Reconstruction and before. And these two groups, you know, need each other. They don't necessarily like each other. They need each other. So he's going to have this rally. He's already had one. And he's got, you know, he's got the governor's uh, Republican governor, uh, gubernatorial candidate's wife goes to it and so forth. And Crump sends him a message. And he says, you better stop these rallies. You better shut down Republican headquarters in Memphis or I will police you. And the guy went ahead anyway. Martin went ahead. What happened? The next day, every customer going into the bookstore, into the into the bookstore, into the drugstore is searched, padded down and searched, including school children going in to buy ice cream cones. And this goes on 24 hours, well, 
not 24 hours, but the store is open like 11 hours. So it goes on the whole time the store is open where they're being searched. goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And Martin eventually flees the city. He has to leave. He's he, he leaves. He returns one time to go to a baseball game in a stadium he helped to build. He is arrested by police and he is forced out again. He's arrested at the stadium where he, you know, helped build. Um, he complains to the Justice Department. The Justice Department is willing to go against Crump because it's so blatant, but it is vetoed by higher ups in the administration. There is no prosecution. This is not a mystery. It is open, open harassment. There's nothing subtle about it. And Crump does not deny it, but he gets away with it because he's allied with the administration. All the way through Roosevelt's life, he is a loyal supporter. Um, And he's friendly with both Eleanor and Franklin. So it is a very unsavory alliance and nothing is done uh, to stop him from doing these things. And I could go on and on with other examples. And it's chapter of the book. Initially, I didn't, even, I didn't know about Crump. And I found out about this. I said, I've got to have this be a chapter. And again, it would stand alone telling that particular story. And, you know, inevitably, inevitably in this discussion, you know, we, st- we go back to, you know, the, the big elephant in the room, trumpeting at the top of his lungs, is, of course, uh, the concentration camps, the internment camps uh, for Japanese Americans, and to some extent also, as I, be- I, be- I believe, a small amount of German Americans were also interned, but primarily the Japanese Americans. And uh, it's, it's, there's, there's often this idea that gets repeated that actually Roosevelt didn't want to do this, but the public was so, you know, so racist, so so much afraid of uh, Japanese Americans that he had to do this. But this is this is not true. This is a legend, right? Oh, it is very much a legend. Um, Roosevelt, first of all, his his ideas. In the 1920s, he wrote op-eds for a Georgia paper called the Macon uh, Telegraph. And in them, he's praising California's laws that ban Japanese, uh, first-generation Japanese from owning land. He is against intermarriage. He is praising limits on Japanese immigration. So, Roosevelt is not a big friend of the Japanese. In the in 1936, this is before Pearl Harbor. Roosevelt actually says privately that if we ever get a war with Japan, any Japanese Americans who meet American or Japanese ships in Honolulu or other ports or their relatives should immediately be put into a constant his term concentration camp. In, in the event of war. Now, Japanese internment doesn't occur until two months after, more than two months after Pearl Harbor. In that crucial period, there is some anti-Japanese feeling, but if you look at the press initially, they're saying, well, leave the Japanese Americans alone. They're Americans. Most of them were American citizens. They'd been born there by that time, right? Um, and uh, that's the attitude. Roosevelt has people in his administration who are friends of Japanese Americans who say, Mr. President, please speak out in defense of Japanese Americans because we do have some anti-Japanese feeling on the West Coast. We'd like you to speak. He never did. So this starts rising and rising and rising. However, 
as late as February, this is the last poll we have before Roosevelt begins internment process, uh, the poll says that 50 more than 50% of Americans are all right, are happy with the way the government is dealing with Japanese Americans, meaning they're not supportive, they don't see any reason to send them to camps. And you do get later polls where Americans say they're for it, but that's after it's already happened, right? And you've got all the hysteria. You've got all the, uh, you know, all these people pushing for it. There's a lot of opposition to it. Roosevelt goes against it. As I mentioned, his attorney general Biddle was against it. His uh, FBI director Hoover, of all people, was against it. His secretary of labor, a lot of people in the military, a lot of people in the Navy, a lot of people were against it. And so it wasn't like, you know, there isn't this overwhelming hysteria, right, that, that forces Roosevelt's hand. It takes two months. There is hysteria that builds up, but that's largely because the administration does not try to calm things down. But even then, um, it isn't that overwhelming. It isn't that a big a deal. Um, Roosevelt did not have to do this. We're talking about, you know, a hundred and something thousand Americans, right? There, there are other ways of handling this. He does not have to do this. He's not forced to do this. It wouldn't have hurt his popularity in the least had he not done it. <laughs> it's something, you know, a quote, which you, which is in your book with Senator Haig, which could be said today, I think, whenever I hear a discussion of civil rights and the right of free speech and the right of the Constitution, always remember that you will find him with a Russian flag under his coat. And there's a trend. There's a trend at this time where, you know, of course, in the 1930s, long before the war actually breaks down, breaks out, people feel there's going to be something. There's a great, great concern about national security, about war. And the more, the more concerned people are, the more threat there is, the more critics of the administration are presented first as communists and as fascists, or as, you know, even later on actually as Nazis. You have these claims that Nazis are working to undermine the elections to help the Republicans. Can you tell us a bit about the role which the threat of war, the, the, these fears of Foreign um, of foreign enemies played into these uh, played into these um, um, civil rights abuses, which you talked about. Yeah, you know, you quoted uh, Mayor Haig of Jersey City, and it's worth mentioning. I think as you did that, that was before the war, and Haig is uh, very worried about uh, people challenging labor organizers and others. He's an ally of Roosevelt. Um, but very worried about people coming into Jersey City who have different points of view. And he, he'll make the argument. He's a guy that, that actually seems like he would be a big Trump supporter in some ways. But he was a Roosevelt guy. Um, and his name was Mayor Haig. So you have this sort of fear of, of immigrants. You have, um, and a lot of that goes back to, you know, communists. I mean, the early American Communist Party was primarily um, um, immigrant, right? And so people would often link them together. And then later in the 19, late 40s, you're getting groups like the Bund, the German-American Bund, 
which is uh, pro uh, pro Hitler. So you're getting these groups on the extremes that are often associated uh, with uh, uh, with both Germany and um, um, uh, and the Soviet Union. So there is some of that out there. Um, however, in the 1940 election, you have Roosevelt's opponent is Wilkie, who pretty much supports Roosevelt's foreign policy with some exceptions. Um, so you can overstate uh, the strength of, of, of those attitudes. Um, um, and there is a group that opposes Roosevelt's foreign policy called the America First Committee, which certainly I think Nazis are trying to penetrate, but it's not a Nazi organization. The America First Committee has socialists like Norman Thomas in it. It has pacifists. Uh, it has people like John F. Kennedy in it and Gerald Ford. Um, but uh, there are certainly people, as you would find in, you know, from both the left and the right that are trying to influence policy. I think that you can exaggerate how effective they are, though. If you look back, um, I don't think that they are, um, you know, as effective as they're made out to be. But certainly they're there and they play a role. But the fact that they're not very effective only, you know, that only calls into question this idea that they are a national security threat of some kind. Oh, yes, definitely. And during, you know, um, you get something called the Smith Act that is passed overwhelmingly in 1940. What's going on in 1940? Well, you have uh, Hitler's on the march, but he's allied, de facto, allied with the Soviet Union. You know, the, you had the pact, uh, Moscow-Berlin Pact in 1939. That's still there. So the Smith Act is really named uh, primarily against the Communist Party, which at that up till that time had been, you know, growing very rapidly and so forth, but it was now associated with enemies of the United States by the administration and others. Well, guess what happens in 1941? Uh, the uh, Soviet Union is attacked. We are suddenly we become eventual allies of the Soviet Union, and the Communist Party is very influential, back in the driver's seat, and very influential in the federal government. And the prosecutions during the war for sedition are of right wingers, not of communists. They are often supporting the prosecution, but the Socialist Workers Party, the Trotskyites, are prosecuted. And they are not right-wingers. They are supporters of Trotsky, the Soviet, you know, the exiled Soviet leader. And they are prosecuted during the war. So it's interesting how these things suddenly change. The communists oppose the Smith Act. Then later they support using it against their political enemies. And their political enemies, in many cases, had supported the Smith Act. And now they're proclaiming the need for civil liberties. So it's very much like today, where people suddenly become civil libertarians when their interests are attacked. And we see that process occurring now. And I could, you know, we could all see examples of that. Harvard and Atlanta, where you have uh, environmentalists being prosecuted under domestic terrorism laws. They're talking about civil liberties. They weren't interested in those things before as much. So it's very familiar. If you read uh, this period, you're going to see deja vu, or I don't know if that's the right word, but you're going to say familiar parallels to what's happening today over and over again.
And so there's something which, you know, I've never understood. And I, you know, after I've read your book, it's actually harder for me to understand. Usually a book makes it easier for you to understand history. Here it's harder for me to get it. And, you know, Roosevelt was very popular with many of the most intelligent people at the time. And genuinely intelligent people, you know, people who had a commitment to civil rights. We've got the ACLU. We've got Reynolds Niebuhr. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, uh, all these progressive uh, intellectuals and media outlets, and a lot of these people, they mm, they have they abandon a lot of their commitment to civil rights. And you, you talk about this. You talk about the ACLU refusing to defend certain cases. You talk about a neighbor who adapts an actually a prosecutorial tone when he talks about uh, uh, free speech. He talks about cleansing the traitorous element, which is something you would hear in a prosecution speech in the Soviet Union. And I don't fully understand how do all of these people, uh, who, who are generally, you know, we know them as, you know, we might disagree with them on some topics, but they are generally seen as intelligent and committed to some civil liberties. How do they all end up jumping on the bandwagon to this extent? Is it, is it because of the threat of fascism? Is it just because they're so committed to the New Deal project? What happened? I think all of those are true. Um, and you know, we could see the same thing. I, I We could all see the same thing happening today. And I find it hard to explain. Uh, but I think there's, there's a willingness. They like Roosevelt. They think he's doing the right thing. They think his intentions are good. They think he's a humane man. They think he knows he's an intelligent. He is an intelligent man. So they're in t- they're inclined very often to look past things. I would sort of look at it more of a glass half full thing because I see many examples on the left of people that are pushing back against Roosevelt. And I don't see that happening today. Uh, someone like uh, 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 Norman Thomas, a socialist, he's de- defending the rights of right wingers, uh, civil liberties. Uh, he's a genuine socialist. He's on Roosevelt's left. There are people like Biddle, um, who does go along with it, but he's genuinely against Japanese internment. He doesn't like a lot of the show trials of right wingers. And even Niebuhr. I will say is, is, is you can't generalize because he's against Japanese internment. So I think it's actually a more encouraging political atmosphere on both the left and the right in many ways towards civil liberties than we have today. Because I will find I can name several new dealers who are willing to fight back against some of these things. And I can find conservatives who were often promoting civil liberties at the time. Um, And uh, in fact, it was said that the lower level officials in the Justice Department in many ways are more sympathetic to individual rights than the ACLU was at the time. You know, if you get down to the lower levels, a lot of these people remember World War I. They've been trained by professors that saw the abuses in World War I, and they're willing to fight back. And I think it would have been a lot worse had they not fought back. 
we would have had internment in Hawaii, for example, which we did not have because the mil- the leadership of the military there is against it. Roosevelt wanted to intern Japanese Americans in Hawaii. He wanted to move them to one of the smaller islands. And they finally said, look, Mr. President, that would be very expensive. We're fighting a desperate war in the Pacific. We do need those ships for other purposes. Um, so I think that there's some encouragement that someone could draw here if, they're value, if they value civil liberties. The possibility of coalitions between left and right, they do exist during this time. And I would like to... I would like to mm, come back to another question. You know, I've said that we are creatures of tradition here. And I'd like to conclude also with a traditional question. Can you tell our, our, our listeners uh, what books are you reading right now? Maybe there's something that you are reading and you'd like to tell us about. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a book on Napoleon that I just recently finished by Andrew Roberts. And I've been reluctant to go to the Napoleon movie because I hear that it presents a very different Napoleon because the Napoleon of this book, and I've got all kinds of problems with him, was witty, charming, um, um, uh, um, often, uh, you know, uh, the kind of guy that would get you, know, you could, you know, you could have a conversation with an ordinary person could have a conversation with. Um, and I get the impression from what I've heard about this movie that he's portrayed in a very different kind of way. Um, I'm reading a book about Whitaker, uh, the biography of Whitaker Chambers uh, called Witness, which has been sitting on my shelf for decades. And Chambers was part of the communist network in the 1920s and 30s. He ultimately broke with it and he accused a very high official of the State Department, his former friend, Alger Hiss, of espionage. And I'm finding it to be quite a a fascinating book. Um, It's just an old, dusty book on my shelf that I finally pulled down and started to read. Uh, But I did enjoy the book on Napoleon and I'd recommend it. And people might want to if they've seen the movie, they may want to look at that. And I probably will see the movie, but I've heard that it portrays him in a very different way. Thank you for being with us today, David. And as usual, I add, you know, books are like Dorito chips. You cannot have just one. And so if and when you do write another book, you're welcome again on our show. Wonderful. All right. Thank you. <laughs>